This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Alrighty, let's get into this. Let's see if it works. Oh, this is going to be an interesting topic, isn't it? We all love this, don't we? The sinfulness of sin. Scripture is a catalogue of the human condition... And it's given as an example for us to learn from. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 6-3 is going to be my first passage, but I will be flicking through them reasonably quickly. Uh, so I'll have them up on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 6, from verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Bible is a catalogue of both the good and the bad, but a large amount is the bad. A large amount records the bad. In fact, I know of people who, Christians, who have actually almost forsaken the faith when they've read the Bible and realised some of the things that are written in it. Because the Bible doesn't hide the human condition. It's very raw in what it uh, puts out there about the wickedness of the human heart. And it shows categorically that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. And this is the pattern we see from the first book in Genesis, from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, right through to the book of Revelation and the final judgment. We see a pattern repeated over and over, story after story, that man left to his own devices falls further and further from God and that the human heart tends towards evil and selfishness. Malcolm Muggeridge rightly said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. You only have to turn on the news, any news, at any time, to see the human heart on display. From murder, rape, adultery, incest, assaults, lying, forgery, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm sure you could tick off all ten commandments within 20, 30 minutes of listening to the news of all the wickedness that we see on display. So scripture makes it clear that our nature is fallen and tends downward. But we don't like to think of ourselves like that. We like to delude ourselves that we are actually better than we really are. We try to skew or justify reality to match our perception of ourselves. Ask any stranger at work, out on the street, if they're a good person and you will struggle to find anyone who answers no. There was a classic example on TV. There's a game show called The Moment of Truth. I'm not sure if you've seen this. I haven't watched the shows other than this particular episode because it reveals something very deep about the human condition. The contestant before the show takes a extended polygraph test and they're asked a lot of questions. And this 
forms the basis of whether they're answering the questions correctly during the show. So essentially they're being tested against their own conscience in what they answer. And to stay on the show, they must answer every question correctly. The longer they last on the show, the more money they can win. And they can quit at any time as long and, and take home the money that they've earned, but only before hearing the next question. So once they've heard the next question, they have to answer it. And on this night, this girl admits to cheating on her husband, stealing from an employer, being in love with another man, and all sorts of other things. And then she is asked this question. Do you think you're a good person? This is one of the questions. What do you think her answer was? Yes. Deep down, what does her mind think of herself? She's going for $200,000 if she answers this question correctly. She's answered questions a hundred times more awkward than this question. This is not destroying her marriage or destroying her family like all the other questions did. She had nothing to lose by saying something like, no, you've seen by my previous answers, I'm a horrible person. Now, her answer will be compared to the polygraph test. So she's answering against her own conscience. She answers yes to the question. Yes, she really does think she's a good person. Then the results are revealed. False. She loses everything. She's already lost her marriage by the previous uh, questions that she's answered. Ripped apart her family. And now she's lost all her money. Which was probably the only consolation prize. But this reveals just how deceptive our own minds can be. That even on national television when all your sins are brought forth, it still doesn't click that we're not good. We're not good. Even when presented with revelation after revelation, we convince ourselves we're, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We're so good at lying internally in the thoughts that we think and deluding ourselves. It is one of the hardest things, I think, to do as a human is to honestly or, or to reason honestly within yourself, to be honest with your own thoughts and motivations and intentions. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 We can't even get to the bottom of our own hearts. But thankfully God's word can. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is not a dead, dry historical book for days gone by. It is alive. It is active among those who study it. It's able to get to the deepest issues imaginable. And it's able to discern the truth of our own thoughts and intentions. Something that we struggle to even do. But God's word is able. And this is the answer to Jeremiah 7, 17 verse 9. God is able to know the wickedness of our hearts. And he has given us his living word to help reveal it to us. Sin... Sin is a word that is disappearing from our culture. Psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book years ago called Whatever Became of Sin. His main idea was that sociology and psychology tend 
to avoid words like evil and immorality and wrongdoing. Meninger shows that the theological notion of sin became the legal idea of crime and then slid further from its true meaning when it was relegated to the psychological category of sickness. And of course, sickness is something that it like happens to us. It's not really our fault. It's genetics or it's some external factors that cause us to get sick. And in this politically correct world that we live in, in this self-esteem culture, words like sin are too harsh and upsetting. But without them, we lose the most accurate way of vocalizing our actions and condition. And we do ourselves a huge disservice by glossing over what sin is and what must be done about it. In fact, so fuddy-duddy is the word sin that in 2007 the Oxford Junior Dictionary started removing such words as sin and devil and minister and words of that effect because they have become so irrelevant and so unused in our day and age. The word sin is disappearing from our dictionaries. But there's also many so-called preachers who have also tried to remove or redefine sin. One such example, Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral, who said, sin is an act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's one definition of sin. He later said that, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. These foundational Christian words, sin, hell, repentance, have been continuously watered down and silenced over the years, all in an effort to make us feel better, feel better about ourselves. Are people happier now? Now that with all this self-esteem movement around, are children better behaved with all the self-esteem? Are they more kind and generous? Not at all. It's gone in the opposite direction. Sin is a foundational biblical issue. It's a primary subject at the start of the Bible, and the restoration from its consequences is a primary subject at the end of the Bible. It is the reason Jesus came and suffered and died is to deal with the issue of sin. And we must understand what sin is and God's thoughts on it. What is sin? Specifically, sin is transgression of God's commands. More broadly, I guess you could say it's anything that goes against God's character. I like Suzanne, Susanna Wesley's definition of sin. I know I've read it to you before. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs your tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. So it's not limited to just external actions. It includes the big things as well as the little things, right down to the mere thoughts and intentions of our heart. Ralph Venning said, As God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. 
Next, I want to look at whether sin is normal. And firstly, for the unbeliever. What is the unbeliever's relationship to sin? In John 8.31, Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will be free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. They're chained to it. It runs in their blood. It brings them much pleasure and much pain. And I think Eliphaz got this right in his response to Job when he said that man who drinks iniquity like water in Job 15. But if we're going to look into sin, what better place to read from than Romans 1? This is a slightly lengthy passage, so bear with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God For an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just As they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Notice that last bit, and give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sin is not considered bad anymore. Many sins are considered a virtue in this day and age. Drunkenness is not considered a sin anymore. It's a trend. It's a trendy thing to get plastered with your mates. Fornication is not a sin anymore. In fact, you're laughed at and ridiculed if you're a virgin in your 20s. Dishonoring your parents isn't a sin anymore. It's cool and hip to rebel and carve your own path. Lying isn't bad. 
It's just making a sale. <laughs> Theft is just sticking it to the wealthy who can afford it anyway. Covetousness and greed is just keeping up with the Joneses. We are, by nature, children of wrath because of sin. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So to the unbeliever, they are like a moth to the flame, slaves to sin, trapped in the clutches of sin. Forced labor. The devil has them in his workforce. Almost like a zombie, really, aren't they? Kind of dead and still trying to attack you. As Roman 2 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. It doesn't even say because of your sin you are storing up wrath, though that be true, but rather because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, because you refuse to acknowledge and humble and turn from your sin, they're storing up wrath for themselves. Sin is normal for unbelievers, but that doesn't make it acceptable. When people say they were born like this, that doesn't excuse it either. I, as far as I can tell, was born to covet things. I was born greedy and selfish. From the earliest age I remember being selfish greedy and self-consumed. As far as I'm concerned, I was born that way. But that doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it okay. It just confirms that I have a fallen nature like the rest. And I need redeeming. So in a nutshell, that's the unbeliever's relationship to sin. Now let's look at the believer's relationship to sin. A Christian has a new relationship with sin. We were born again. We passed from death to life. We died to self. We were raised anew with Christ. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're instantly perfect, but that we have a different relationship with sin. In the response of repentance, we have turned and forsaken sin to embrace Christ. When the truth is known, there's, there's no going back. And likewise, when we realize we've been slaves to sin, when we realize what sin is, that it's a rebellion against God, and we have godly sorrow, we have a different attitude and relationship to sin. The Bible says godly sorrow works repentance and leads to salvation. Second Corinthians again, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Godly sorrow is a good thing. Worldly sorrow produces death, Paul says. Godly sorrow is a very good thing. So we have a new relationship with sin. Rather than a friend, it is now an enemy. Because we have been called out of the world. And that was one of the purposes of the Old Testament law, was actually to magnify sin. Now, I don't mean glorify, I mean magnify, make it larger, make it bigger, to show the true nature of sin. It was to clarify what sin was and make it obvious to us. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. When you're ignorant of the requirements of the law... You feel good because you think you're doing all right. But when the commandments are explained and we compare ourselves to them, suddenly we realize we're stuffed. And by Jewish standards, Paul was very righteous. Yet the law revealed every kind of sin in him. It dealt with the internal Paul was convicted of his lust, it says in the King James, because the law said you shall not covet. No desiring your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's stuff. No lusting after things, because the law says you shall not covet. The law reveals sin, but it can't heal sin. The law can expose your motives but it can't transpose them, it can't change them. It can uncover your defilement, but it can't wash it off. The law just shows us how utterly and exceedingly sinful we are, but it doesn't help after that. The law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It only unearthed our rottenness. It just pronounced us guilty. And remember, the, the death sentence was the penalty for breaking many of these commandments. Such was the seriousness that God was okay with the death penalty if you broke them. In fact, in the Old Testament, it often says, purge the evil from among you. This is the theme that the author of Hebrews seems to pick up on. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace 
That's a tough verse. When the strictness of the Old Testament law is discussed, you know, we can often have a sigh of relief because, you know, oh, we're under grace. But we may be under grace, but the author of Hebrews also says in chapter 6, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them to repentance since they crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And if we go back to the passage in Hebrews 10 that I just quoted from, it says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I'm not going to deal with whether or not you can lose your salvation, but these are very stern words. Sin, willful sin, is not tolerated by God. We are called to a higher standard, and we are given the grace to live to that higher standard. But it won't happen if we're easy on sin, if we neglect so great a salvation. If sin was okay because it's under the blood, why does Paul keep rebuking churches for their behavior? Why does he instruct them to kick a man out of the church if it's just under the blood? Why does Christ say he'll remove the lampstand from the churches in Revelation if it's under the blood? Christ is after a spotless bride. We are to be holy as he is holy. What would you think of the child who drops their parents' mobile phone on the concrete and after the parent forgives them, they become more and more careless and drops it again and again. If you ask me, that child will be heading for some chastisement. And if we treat God's salvation with carelessness, then we too will be dealing with chastisement. Sin is, a, is opposed to God. It's disobedience to his commands. Do we think that God doesn't care if we disobey him? God is gracious and merciful, but his grace is shown to the repentant, not the unrepentant, not the proud and the arrogant. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The man in Corinth was removed because he would not repent. Only after he repents is he brought back in. God is looking for broken and repentant hearts. Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Sin will lead us to places we never thought we would go. 
And if we go along with it, it will destroy us unless we repent and continue to repent. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where does God dwell? He dwells on a high and holy place with the contrite and the lowly. One of the dangers we can face when reading scriptures, and I'll attempt to avoid making this mistake, is the tension that you get within the Bible. The tension you get from one verse versus another verse, which appear to say opposite things, especially on topics like this. There is a tension in Scripture regarding the sinfulness of sin and the amazing grace of God. On the one hand, sin is utterly condemned and rebuked. And I've read some of the striking passages from Hebrews which shows how seriously sin is dealt with. But on the other hand, God shows unimaginable kindness and grace to us in his patience. If you only dwelt on those two verses I read from Hebrews, you will possibly go mad. I'm not kidding. You will possibly go mad because if you put yourself in that category, if you are in that category, God forbid, you know, it says that your only expectation is terror, knowing that judgment is coming. You will go mad. But if you balance it with the rest of Scripture, you may not go mad. Think of the man, think of the man in Corinth. I've been in that place. I've almost gone mad. Think of the, the man in Corinth who's, who's kicked out of the church. Why was he kicked out of church? Because he was living with his father's wife. That's, that's not the best thing to do. Living with it. In fact, Paul says it's so bad, he says that the, it's the immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. It was so revolting and bad. And yet, this verse should give us hope. Because what is the sentence that Paul gives? He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That gives me hope. (laughs) What hope there was for this man that he was given this chance to still repent. And that's what proper church discipline is designed to do, is to bring about repentance. And we see in 2 Corinthians that it works that he does repent. So there is a balance. God hates sin, but he is merciful to the repentant. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some counselorness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will, this he will also reap. John is a good book. First John, sorry. John is a good book. First John is also a good book. Uh, it's short and profound, but he also has some tough things to say about those who practice sin. But he also gives us profound hope 
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He is writing that we may not sin. Not that we shouldn't care whether we sin or not. Not that we should shrug our shoulders and, ah, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. What does it matter? He's exhorting his audience so that they might not sin. Then he says, if you sin. He doesn't say when you sin. He actually says, if you sin. Which says to me that sin is expected to be the exception, not the rule. Sin is to be abnormal for the Christian. Now, I realize it's possible to come away feeling hopeless after reading 1 John, depending on your translation, because the language can sound so strong. For instance, this verse, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. It's a pretty tough verse. Now, I trust you're aware of the the Greek behind this verse because when it talks about he who sins, it is in the present continuous tense, which would make it better translated, he who practices sin is of the devil. The present and continuous practicing of sin. The NASB is a little bit clearer. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen or known him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the sin has for the devil has sinned from the beginning. This means Christians don't practice sin. We don't plan ahead and that we're going to do some sinning tonight and we're going to do some sinning tomorrow. We don't plan sin, how we're going to commit it. A Christian doesn't practice sin. 1 Corinthians 15, Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The enemy has long tried to make sin normal in Christendom. There are examples all the way down through history of a lax standard of holiness and of righteousness in churches. We see some even beginning in the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I don't come away thinking... Sin is normal and acceptable. In fact, I come away with the opposite. I come away feeling convicted of even the most small things in my life. I feel my life to be so distant from what I read in the book of Acts or the epistles. In fact, I find this book has such a high standard that I'm reluctant to preach it because I'll get pushed out the door as a legalist or fanatic. This was the case for many a preacher in history. In fact, the the Whitfields and Wesleys were often kicked out of churches because they read the Bible and preached it it as it's written. And they were kicked out of dead churches that just were more interested in tradition. This book has scary consequences for sin. I don't mean for the world, but also within the church. 
You see a couple die in the book of Acts for lying. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, speaking of elders, it says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Do we fear sinning? Or do we shrug our shoulders like, ah, it's under the blood? Do we even stop to ponder what we've done? Do we take time to weep and mourn over sin and brokenness and repentance? Some may think this is a depressing message, and perhaps it should be if you have a blasé attitude, because God doesn't want us to be comfortable with sin in our lives. That's not to say he wants us to be depressed per se about it, but rather he wants us to be broken over it. He wants us to confess it and to deal with it. He wants us to forsake it. He wants us to put off, as Paul often says, put off lying, put off stealing, stop sinning, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on love for one another. We are called to be holy and not a mirror image of the world. And despite all this, Knowing the seriousness of sin, we must not try to convince ourselves that we are not sinners. Because that is a recipe for disaster. Only when we recognize and confess our sin can God's grace be manifest. When you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin. And at the end of the day, the, the point is not to burden you, burden us over sin, but to exhort us not to play games with it and to expose it in our own hearts wherever it is found. We have to start this direction internally because it's very easy to find everybody else's sin, but that will not deal with the sin in our own hearts. It's just like a garden left unattended. It quickly becomes overwhelmed with weeds. And so too can our hearts become overcome with hidden sins. There are three types of gardeners. Let me bring it up. This is a last minute thought. There are three types of gardeners. Those who have no plants and only weeds and don't care. They're not really a gardener. Those who weed once in a blue moon and suffer the rest of the time because of lost productivity and produce. And the one who carefully pulls out weeds as soon as they are noticed while they are small. Weeds are much easier to deal with when they are first discovered and are small. They are much harder to deal with when they have grown large and have very deep roots. Maturity and holiness don't happen by default. It takes a close walk with Christ. A disciplined life in his word and a humble and obedient following of his instructions. One thing that's absent in these day, this day and age is the act of repentance, the response of repentance. Repentance is another word that's disappearing from our language. I think one of the most difficult things about repentance is admitting we're wrong. That's the hard part, is admitting that we're wrong and that we need to humble ourselves, that there's something wrong with us, that it's our fault. But a repenting Christian is a growing Christian. 
a humble Christian is a useful tool in God's hand. There's not much God can do with a proud Christian other than humble them. And that's not always a pleasant experience. And lastly, a proud Christian is like a rusty bike chain. I had one of these this week. It does not operate well. It hadn't been used for almost 10 years. The chain was rusted and fused together. And it took a lot of hard work and grease to ply the joins apart so it would turn freely. And when the hard work was done, it was much easier to ride. Let's not be a rusty old bike chain, but a smooth, flowing, oiled chain that does the will of God. I did intend actually to to preach on repentance this morning, Uh, but after writing the introduction to the sermon, which is where I normally start when I write a sermon, as I start with the introduction, uh, and laying the foundation of sin, well, it's 50 minutes into the sermon and um, <laughs> there wasn't time left to deal with repentance, so I'll leave that until next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word that says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Because, Father, we can so easily deceive ourselves. Lord, I know just by the tip of the iceberg in my own heart how deceptive it can be in minimizing sin, directing blame elsewhere. But, Father, I thank you for your word that is alive and active and is able to bring illumination and light and truth into our lives that we would, Father, come to you for answers, come to you for cleansing, for knowing we are sinners does not rid us of sin, it's only by your grace through the work of Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that we would see our own sin, that we would deal with it honestly and humbly before you, that we would be useful tools in your hand. Father, I pray you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the grace to weed our own hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au. Thank you.